0: You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am
1: Jenna Chandler Ward. More than 80% of teachers in the US are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. We want to shine a light on how whiteness impacts education. To illuminate the assumptions that are used as a baseline from
0: which everything is judged, because whiteness is what passes for normal. We want to confront those assumptions so that we can become consciously and intentionally anti-racists for all of our students. You are listening to Teaching While White. Schools have a long history of cherry-picking traditions and images of indigenous people from the region we now call the United States. You might walk into a classroom and see a teepee, a totem pole, or a dreamcatcher, And it might seem like these things are celebrations of Native culture, but they often exist without any original meaning or context.
1: The vibrant history and present-day culture of Native Americans are either absent or reduced to a caricature. We still see worksheets that perpetuate myths of Indigenous people, including the story of the first Thanksgiving. How many elementary schools still have young children dressing up in headdresses for
0: Thanksgiving festivities? For this episode, we wanted to learn more about how teachers can do better. How do we acknowledge the central place of indigenous culture in the U.S., and how do we teach it in the present tense? Jenna sat down
1: with Claudia Foxtree, a middle school special education teacher who works outside of Boston. She also leads workshops and conversations to, as she says, unerase indigenous people, voices, history, inventions, and ingenuity
2: you to know Kena Atiano, Yuriman Arawak, Claudia Foxtree, Kauai, Daka, Iaha. So I said, uh, greetings, brothers and sisters. My name's Claudia Foxtree, I'm from the Arawak nation, island of Yuriman, and I'm happy to be here. And I actually don't speak fluently, I know a few phrases here and there, and lots of songs with words in them. Um, I work really hard at saying what I can say because it was something that was taken away from me, from many indigenous people purposefully. And there's a lot of culture embedded in language. And so when you take the language, you take the culture. You also take the children sometimes because you take away their ability to communicate with their families when you take away their language, which is what happened when kids went to boarding schools. And so I work at keeping some of the language alive in a daily basis. One reason is so... My ancestors can hear me and know that I've survived.
1: When Claudia refers to boarding schools, she's talking about the movement to remove Native American children from their homes and place them in schools designed to assimilate them into the dominant white culture. Indigenous children were stripped of their names, language, and traditions in a systematic effort to wipe out Native culture. These schools were established in the late 19th century by the U.S. government and religious organizations, The last one didn't close until 1973. Claudia is working to challenge the myths and stereotypes that grew out of this effort to erase Native culture. It can be challenging.
2: The context of the question I get the most goes something like this. So you're Native American. What nation are you? And I'm thinking, this is really great because they're using the word nation instead of the word tribe. So this person must kind of be with it and have educated themselves. And um, I will say, I'm Arawak. And they'll say, oh, those are the people who were in the Caribbean island who first greeted Columbus. And I said, yes, and I'll be more excited. And then they'll say, aren't they all dead? Mm. So that is actually a question. Aren't they all dead?
0: And yet they're talking to you.
2: And they're talking to me. And I just said I was. And so that is the number one question. And if you ask um, indigenous people across the country, the number one problem is considering that indigenous people are all dead. Non-indigenous people don't see any indigenous people. And so they're like, oh, there's nobody around. It's the ideology that's been perpetuated. It's the myths that's been perpetuated. It's the stereotypes. It's the stories. It's the absence of real life, living, acting, dancing, musician, lawyer, activist, politician, It's the lack of everything else that makes folks believe that we're all dead.
0: Right. And the invisibility in curriculum, the invisibility. Correct. Just invisibility, period, in discussion,
2: acknowledgement. Speaking of acknowledgement, I think it's probably a good time at least to say that uh, we want to acknowledge that we are in Shammet, which is what the indigenous people called Boston. And the people from this area were the Massachusetts people, and they still exist here. As uh, someone from the Massachusetts, not me, but somebody else would say, we've always been here. We were here 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and we will always continue to be here. And in, and they are correct, because as we age and move on or do whatever, there will always be Massachusetts people, because this is their land And they are the caretakers of it.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So we're about to head into November. We just walked through um, what is sometimes called Columbus Day weekend. Um, In some places, it's now being referred to as Indigenous People Weekend. And I know that you are working with schools. You're working with teachers. Your kids have gone through schools. Is there a common, I don't know, if you have an audience of white teachers who maybe don't know very much about how to talk about indigenous peoples, how to, to teach about it and are giving out handouts for Columbus about Columbus and or Thanksgiving. I don't know. Are there common themes you see or messages?
2: So for years, I've been asked to do presentations in November because it's Native American Heritage Month and it's Massachusetts. and Thanksgiving is the thing people want me to talk about. This year, I was busier in October. Than I was going to be in November because more people are interested in Indigenous Peoples Day and the accuracy of the Columbus narrative. The difference is that folks can let go of Columbus pretty easily. They didn't kind of love him to begin with. It wasn't a day that they were celebrating Columbus. They just liked having the day off, right? But Thanksgiving doesn't have that feeling. It's a cherished time that families have gotten together. And it is uh, problematic because of how it was created. So when we go back to the beginning, the question we ask is when was the first Thanksgiving? And of course, that has to be with Indigenous people. So for thousands of years, Indigenous people have been celebrating the harvest and doing Thanksgivings. That's what we call them as well. For um, sun, the moon, the strawberries, the corn, you name it. And so the first Thanksgivings on this land were indigenous people. And to not acknowledge that goes into the invisibility problem and myth. When um, you look at Abraham Lincoln later on, he was coming out of the Civil War. That means the country was divided and he was trying to bring the country together. Sarah Josepha Hale petitioned him to make a Thanksgiving Day that would unify the country. And he thought that might be a good idea. And so he needed a creation myth, an origin myth that everyone could buy into that would restart the country as a unified group. And when you actually go back in history to the officially proclaimed thanksgivings that's the key word officially proclaimed you will find thanksgivings by European settlers like governor Bradshaw in 1637 that says we proclaim an official day of Thanksgiving and the rest of it will always be for our men coming back after having massacred native people. And those aren't the kind of official proclamations that you want to remember and honor when you're unifying the country. So none of the official proclamations get to be used because they are all in honor of having massacred Indigenous people, including the 1637 massacre of 700 Pequot men, women, and children in their village. So... You go back further and you're like, when's another time we can talk about how Native people greeted us and we had this wonderful sit-down? And you get to this mythological time period in 1621. The pilgrims are writing letters home after they've left to start a new life in a new country. And those letters aren't saying, we made a mistake, it's really cold here, there's no food, And there's a lot of violence with indigenous people. We want to come home. The letters they write have a lot of propaganda. Things are great. We've never had so much food. It's wonderful. We're getting treated really well. And that's how they read. And so there's a set of letters that was on the ship called the Fortune. And they are published in a book called Mort's Relation. And in that book are two of them dating to around that time period that kind of match when there might have been some kind of a festival one of them talks about the food that's eaten and the other one is the one that anyone who knows anything about thanksgiving will quote and that's the one where it said massasoit and his 90 men came amongst us and we never had so much plenty as we do now and then goes on to describe some of the food scholars in the area have uh, determined that the pilgrims were probably celebrating their own harvest and thanksgiving. When they did a thanksgiving, it was always religious. Being religious, they would never have done it with indigenous people because indigenous people were seen as heathens. Heathens meaning they had no religion, meaning they had no Christian religion. And so therefore, not being Christian, they wouldn't have done any kind of a thanksgiving with indigenous people. So they were doing it privately, and they were shooting off their guns. So you can imagine that Mass- Massasoit was hearing guns going off, and they've been sort of taking care of these folks and making sure that they have what they need. And he's like, oh, something's going on. Let's rally. And he gets 90 men in full military regalia to show up at where the Pilgrims are. And they're like, uh, why are you here? and he says we heard you shooting your guns and he says oh we're just celebrating and what are you celebrating the harvest you know we had a really good year that kind of thing he says oh well we'll join you you don't have enough food we'll get some deer which is one of the main foods that they have at this greeting meeting and they have um this meal together it does not include women. It does not include children. It is not an official Thanksgiving. It does exist as this time period where they have a meal, where they're sharing, and it would be more in the category of like a diplomatic envoy and a diplomatic meal, not a family get-together meal. So that's the, the biggest myth. The problem isn't so much as the Thanksgiving meal myth is wrong. It is wrong. The problem is that indigenous people don't have a voice in a story that they are involved in. They don't have a voice in their own lands. They don't have a voice in any narrative in this country. If you have a continuum that's a mile long of everything that has to do with indigenous history and culture and people, you might have a foot worth of that mile that is anything anybody knows about indigenous people. And it is like, there's some connection to Columbus, there's some connection to Thanksgiving, they don't like mascots and stereotypes, Uh, they wear feathers, they have teepees, you know, you can name every stereotype. And that's all you can name, because we haven't had a voice in saying anything for the rest of that mile continuum of who we are and what we've done. And to add insult to injury is that every single other racial or ethnic group, whether you came here voluntarily or involuntarily, has some place in the world where they are represented somewhat accurately. So, somewhere in the world, the people like them, pick your race, ethnicity, or religion, are in power, like our lawyers and. Uh, senators or kings and queens or whatever the leadership is, uh, run banks or merchants, uh, have books and literature written about them and their history, are represented in the media and movies, are teachers, are artists, uh, you, you name it, somewhere in the world that exists for every single group that lives here in this country, except for the people who live here in this country and nowhere else, which is the indigenous people. And we wouldn't have an expectation that Germans teach about us. They may, but there's no expectation that they do or should. So we do have it about this United States as we should. And the fact that the socialist curriculum, the core standards, say there's two grade levels where you talk about Thanksgiving, is hugely problematic. We should be discussed in every subject, every grade level, the entire K-12, because this is the land, this is the people of the land, and everything to do with this land and what the people found, invented, and created on this land is relevant to the people who are now living on the land.
0: So those are the ways that we know that myths about Indigenous peoples are perpetuated in curriculum. Oftentimes they do come through holidays, as you said, Um, but I think of all the different ways you mentioned, teepees and you know, I've seen totem poles and I've seen uh, classrooms where they have powwows. I see dream catchers. And I just wondered if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the messages that come with that, but also the difference between appropriation and appreciation.
2: Sure. If you have paid fair market value to an Indigenous artist and you have gotten a piece of jewelry or clothing or something, then you can appreciate that because you've paid fair market value for it. You know, if you've undermined it and you've not paid or you stole it and put it in a museum or something like that, then that's not fair. But if you've done the fair, you've paid the person and you get to have that thing and wear it and do stuff with it. There are issues that indigenous people have that other groups do not have. It's just not an issue for them. For example, we have issues with mascots that other groups just don't have. And we have issues with appropriation that other groups just don't have. The fact that people dress up as indigenous people and think it's okay isn't as big a problem in other groups. We here in the United States have a long history of dressing up. It's a great book called Playing Indian, which goes into that. We can start with the tea party. It's not like anybody thought that was Indian people coming on that boat, throwing tea overboard. Everybody knew who that was and they were dressing up. We have the Boy Scouts dressing up and we can move right into uh, cowboy and Indian movies, which had no indigenous people dressing up. So the idea of dressing up in this culture is embedded in a way it is not embedded about other groups. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It's just not built upon it like it is for indigenous people. So it's a particular issue that we have. And so dressing up and pretending to be indigenous Indian people, in a powwow is totally not appropriate. And there's nothing about fair market involved in that. The problem is who has the power? When a group in power takes on the characteristics or wears the clothing or dresses like the group who does not have power, and I think we've talked enough already to know that indigenous people do not have power in their own country, on their own land, They, the people adopting or borrowing or stealing those aspects of the culture are rewarded. There, you look awesome, this is great, can I do that? Um, There is a sense that it's really cool and special and okay, whereas the people who are actually acting that way, dressing that way, and behaving that way are seen as backward, ignorant, um, savage and not appropriate like you shouldn't wear that here so when the group in power is seen as positive and we're rewarded for it and the group that does it all the time is not really allowed to do it or is criticized for doing it that's cultural appropriation and when I say not allowed I mean like there are laws saying you cannot practice your religion till 1978 You cannot raise your own children till 1978. You cannot have your bones and artifacts from this museum until I think it was 1994. So when we aren't allowed to be Indian, but someone else is allowed to act Indian, that's when there's a problem. And I tend to use um, Indigenous people, Indian, First Nations, Native American, American Indian, pretty interchangeable because there's no good word right now. The best is to use the name of the nation that we're talking about, but we're not talking about nations. We're talking about um, generalized groups. So, uh, you know, indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere before 1492 works really well because it situates. And now you know why Indian words, indigenous words are so long. (laughs) because everything's about relationship. And so it takes a lot longer to say uh, the thing that I sit on when I eat than the table or the kitchen table. And so a lot of our words are long and all those other shortened words make it easier to have conversations.
0: talking about some common words that are used uh all the time that have been totally divorced from their indigenous history and heritage do you mind talking about
2: a few of those sure sure that's um so there's the that's a general definition of cultural appropriation to give examples in um, native culture again when i say uh i'll say three words and you should visualize if you're a list person make a list of what you think of when i say these words winnebago pontiac and sequoia so when i said winnebago most people don't think of the people of the north the um excuse me the great lakes region who were called the winnebago they that wasn't their name for themselves they've actually reclaimed the name for themselves which is ho-chunk uh, most people don't think of them. They think of a huge recreational vehicle. And the fact that we don't connect the people's own name or the name that they were called with the people is highly problematic. I'm not talking about Lake Sigmund, which is a lake in Massachusetts. And it's a native word, or even the word Massachusetts, which is still the thing that it's supposed to be. Pontiac, we think of a car instead of the Ottawa chief who helped protect his culture and his people. And when we think of Sequoia, we think of the trees or cars in some cases, instead of the the Cherokee leader who did something that few people have done throughout history, which is create an entire written language for his people. He used a syllabary, which is more like phonics, like different sounds of the words, supposed to letter per sound. exchange it was little syllable sounds and the entire Cherokee nation was literate in one generation is still the alphabet that they use so the fact that that has been so made so invisible is highly problematic especially in the land and country where these people have been and are or the history exists to not have that history in our schools or our media or any other learning is one of the ways, many ways, that Indigenous people have been made invisible. In Through the language, through erasure, through not telling stories, even the um, maps when we teach have nothing written on them. Complete erasure of what Indigenous people called The rivers and the mountains and some of those names still exist, but the maps don't actually write them down. And they show the manifest destiny or westward expansion and things are named to the east and nothing is named to the west until Europeans get there, which erases the first marriage, the first people, the first home, the first um, child from indigenous ownership to then-European ownership.
0: What, like, let's just pretend I can wave a magic wand and there's a miraculous curriculum that acknowledges and enhances, not just acknowledges, but actually teaches and enhances the, the dignity, the humanity, the respect that Indigenous peoples de- deserve in this country. What Can you tell me, what would that look like?
2: If... I could wave a magic wand and change how things were taught in school. I would still teach... All of the things that we now consider important to teach, and I would use Indigenous frames of reference, we can teach about pyramids here, we can teach about aqueducts here, we can teach about farming techniques and technology from here. We don't need to go to Egypt and Greece and Rome. Every single thing we teach over there, we can teach through the Indigenous people here. And so if the point is to understand how communities evolve, we don't need to be anywhere else. If the point is to show how Europeans were great and wonderful and did all these things, then we're left with the curriculum that we do have. So that's the biggest thing I would change. The same topics of uh, how people evolve and become farmers and settle and stratify, that can all use this land as reference points. I would also change the literature to be more diverse. I understand where this country is in terms of its diversity, and it should have its fair share of Indigenous artists in all curriculum areas, so music, song, poetry, visual, sculpture, and literature, as well as other settler groups. And I think the other groups should be identified as settler groups.
0: Is there anything else we could be doing to... To, to interrupt that, make rendering indigenous people invisible.
2: Something we can do immediately the next moment is watch our language. So when phrases come out that are clearly problematic, like low man on the totem pole or let's have a powwow, we can stop and say, oh, I probably shouldn't be using that because there's no indigenous people here and this really isn't about indigenous people and so finding different phrases to use. So we can change our language immediately. When we see things or hear things, like from other people or in um, the media around us, we can say something instead of just letting it go. That's a stereotype, Uh, that's a microaggression, that's uh, not how we should be dressing, you know, actually speaking up research shows that people not from the group that's being oppressed criticized or stereotypes are stronger in being an ally and speaking up and more likely to be heard so it's a really important role for our allies to be the ones who speak up especially to their own group
0: yeah absolutely and to your point find sources people in the community who actually identify from the indigenous groups in that area to be part of the storytelling instead of creating the narrative based on what we know.
2: I do think that bringing in authentic uh, people who are writers and authors and dancers and singers and all that is an important piece of it. I also think it's only a piece of it. We don't expect to bring in that diverse group of people to teach kids. We expect teachers to do their homework, do their research, and to then teach kids. And so there is a strong component there of self-education. And bringing in guest speakers is fine. It just cannot be the way that we rely on this education moving forward. We have to do our own work and bring in different media, movies and books and documentaries, whatever it is, uh, songs. There's plenty of resources now. I grew up without this internet. I had to rely on face-to-face, person-to-person communication for my culture. And now Indigenous people are the largest group that I have on my Facebook page Mm. (laughs) because we use this media given that we were spread apart and torn apart over so many centuries. We are refinding ourselves that way.
0: You started by acknowledging the land that we were on as we started this interview. uh, I see them more and more, and uh, I wonder if how you feel about that, you personally.
2: I see them more and more, too. In fact, a huge upswing in the last year, and where the Massachusetts Center for Native American Awareness, which I'm on the board for, they um, have answered tons of questions about Thanksgiving, Indigenous People's Day, mascots. And now it's all about how to do a land acknowledgement. So it's definitely the thing to do. Um, and I think it's excellent. However, with caution, I don't want to see it become another stereotype or trope or microaggression. Uh, and the way that happens is when you do it as just a, like, I have to do this. So I'm just going to say this land is a Massachusetts land or whatever. However, short, sweet and you've kind of perfunctory done it. It's not about that. It's about really respecting and honoring the fact that you're on somebody else's yard. You know, and they've allowed you to be there. You're in their home. You're in their garden. And they're not shooting you. (laughs) You know, that's basically the kind of mentality you have to go into it with. And then I like the way Debbie Reese, who is uh, a professor and has a great website where she evaluates books particularly children's books and she does a whole piece about land acknowledgements and what she thinks there are other resources as well and i agree with the piece of make it your own talk about how hard it was for you to make this land acknowledgement talk about the research you had to do um, where you got confused and how it's still important to do because that is a way of bringing indigenous people back into the story naming them and Anybody can do this in the next moment as well. You can talk about the place you were born from the indigenous perspective. You can talk about the places you went this summer from the indigenous perspective. In fact, I am doing it a lot moving forward and finding that I have to stop and look up other places I've been like before I started really doing it. So this summer, I went to the land of the Northern Cheyenne, the Choctaw, and the Crow, which is Montana, Wyoming, and St. Louis. But last year I went to Alabama, and I had to stop and think, now who are the indigenous people of Alabama? (laughs) Um, And one of the things that happens is because they've been relocated so much, you end up with multiple groups in the same area. And so you sometimes have to clarify that as well. And I grew up near Shamit, and I use Shamit because most people don't know that which is Boston, and I said that earlier today. But if I said I grew up in Massachusetts, the people, you'd know what I was talking about. Right. And I want people to work for it a <laughs> yeah. little bit. And to you know make that cognitive dissonance or not getting it right away makes our brains stretch and the neurons grow.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: That was Claudia Foxtree, a middle school teacher and community activist
0: near Boston. I've been paying attention to the different ways that Native Americans are depicted in schools. So often they're reduced to a costume or a cartoon. But I'm not just thinking about how they're depicted, I'm also thinking about how they just don't show up at all in classrooms and curriculum. For example, why does American history only start once Europeans arrived here? And why do we have standard units about Native Americans that are siloed from the rest of American history as if indigenous people are not an integral part of this nation? And why are we still using people as mascots?
1: We have a lot of resources on our website to help you expand the ways you teach about the history and culture of Native Americans. We're airing this podcast in November, the time when many of us are trying to figure out what to teach about Thanksgiving. But really, we need to be thinking about how we include this experience of indigenous people all year round. As Claudia writes, this country would not be what it is without the past and present contributions of its indigenous people.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please spread the word.
1: Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools, communities, and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org.
0: Our story editor is Kate Ellis, with sound editing by Jay Stewart Pheasant and Kate Ellis. Our theme song and music was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Jenna Chandler Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevy, and this is Teaching While White.